0: Hey, this is noah levine founder of against the stream refuge recovery and dharma punks thanks for tuning into the podcast i hope you're enjoying the dharma together may we create a positive change on this planet if you feel moved to leave a donation there's a link in the show notes may our paths cross soon So welcome everyone, um, current policy around masks is um, up to you, assuming that a lot of people are uh, vaccinated, but feel free to wear your mask if that makes you feel more comfortable and um, it's okay not to if you feel safe enough without it, up to you. And uh, welcome to the regular Monday night class against the stream. Uh, This class every Monday, drop in class and been doing it for a long time here in Los Angeles for about 16 years now, Mondays on the West side. So some of you have been coming for a long time. Some of you are here for your first time. How many people for the first time tonight? A bunch of new faces. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to everybody who's dropping in for the first time at home, wherever you're wherever you're tuning in from. Uh, we'll have a 30-minute period of meditation. I'll offer some instructions and then we'll um, I'll give a talk about some aspect of Buddhism and we'll have some discussion. So um, my own feeling is posture isn't that important, um, but there is something. Uh, useful about uh, taking a posture and then keeping it. And so the suggestion is to sit with an upright spine and allow the rest of our bodies to be as relaxed as possible around the upright spine uh, so that we're not rigid or, or too tight, but um, also not kind of so relaxed that we're nodding off. Uh, although that happens sometimes too and it's fine. Um, and to know, I feel like I feel like I didn't hear this when I was new or maybe I heard it and didn't get it, but that um, part of what we're learning is learning to be uncomfortable. And so there is something about sitting still for 30 minutes where it's like, oh, it's gonna be fucking uncomfortable part of the time and that that's actually useful. I think when I started meditating, I was thinking I was supposed to somehow be comfortable just sitting there and totally at peace. And I was sitting here like in agony going like, the fuck is going on here? Why is everybody so still? And I want to jump out of my skin. And it took me uh, you know, a long time to uh, relax into the posture and the body to get used to it. And also just to increase the level of tolerance for discomfort. And um, part of what we're going to talk about tonight is the uh, causes of suffering and the potential to end suffering. And a major part of the end of suffering is making friends with pain, becoming tolerant and ultimately compassionate towards pain. So meditation gives us a opportunity to do that as we sit here and with our achy knees and our sore back and our loud minds and whatever emotions are coming, all part of the practice, all an opportunity for what we're trying to develop. Um, So find a way to sit that feels appropriate, sustainable to you. And as you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed, your attention to be in your body.
1: and releasing any unnecessary tension, softening, relaxing
0: the physical body, while we bring a intention to be alert, to be awake. Mindfulness is alertness to what's happening moment to
2: moment.
1: Mindfulness works best when we
0: bring an attitude of friendliness, of kindness and acceptance to our experience, the foundation of loving kindness to your own mind, your own emotions and bodies. Know although we are aware of all of the sense doors, the sounds, smells and tastes, seeing, thinking, we choose for the first few minutes, traditionally we choose to bring our attention to the sensations that the breath creates, mindfulness of breathing, And we can choose to place our attention on the sensation of the breath at the nostrils or chest or belly. The Buddha's original instructions were something like, breathing in, one knows, I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows, I breathe
1: out. As you bring your attention to your breath, what allows you to know it as it comes and goes
0: And of course, the attention will get back into thinking about the future and past naturally happens for all of us. Part of the discipline of mindfulness is in the beginning, choosing to come back to the breath over and over, letting the thoughts be in the background, come back to the breath, turn out.
1: Disengaging from the thoughts, returning to the body, breathing. First foundation of
2: mindfulness.
0: If you're somewhat new to these techniques, keep coming back to the breath. Keep ignoring your mind.
1: Keep feeling your body sitting, breathing. if you've been practicing for a little while,
0: the Buddha's instructions to continue, expand, to include the whole body, all of the sense doors. All of our emotions
1: are part of our practice.
0: Ultimately, in the full scope of mindfulness practice, there's no... Such thing as a distraction, whatever's happening now. These sounds, we're mindful of sound arising, passing. All of the thoughts and emotions, the heart and mind. We're awake, alert to what's being felt, what's being experienced. Mindfulness begins to reveal, to show us not just what's happening, the breath, the other sensations
1: in the body, the sounds, the thoughts, but also
0: that each one of these experiences is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So, with an alert mindfulness, we investigate what's happening and how it feels
2: moment to moment.
0: Doing our best to meet the unpleasant with acceptance and tolerance and mercy
1: and compassion. And to meet the pleasant experiences, thoughts, sounds, sensations. With non-attached appreciation, enjoying the impermanent pleasantness as it arises and passes through consciousness. No longer ignoring the mind, but investigating it, observing it
0: with a quality of unentangled participation in your own moment-to-moment experience, thoughts and sounds. We participate with the
1: quality of attention we bring. the last couple of minutes, let go of any effort, soften, stop trying Let go of the
0: striving and just be awake to what is. Right now, it's like this, the mind thinking about whatever it's thinking about, the body feeling,
1: the lungs breathing. So I'm going to start with um, asking you a question to reflect on. Um, What is your um, hope
0: for your practice of Buddhism, meditation? Uh, What is your I guess another way to frame it is what is your aspiration? What are you aspiring to? What's your goal?
1: And of course, a lot of us have different
0: different goals, different everywhere from um, maybe some of you have no goals) <laughs> No, no hope, no aspirations, just, you know, uh, somebody suggested you come check it out and you're just here checking it out and not really uh, clear about why yet. Or um, maybe some people have the um, uh, kind of hope of some relaxation, some reducing stress, reducing some of the challenges that we face. kind of reduction of suffering um a lot of people in our community also have this motivation of um i just hope it helps me stay sober i'm an addict and i'm in recovery and i'm just like you know if meditation will help me not be a junkie i'm in (laughs) that will that's good not be an alcoholic or an addict in whatever way Um, The reason I ask, and, you know, you don't have to tell me, but interesting to identify what, you know, came up tonight in your own mind around why you're meditating, why you're participating, why uh, you're studying Buddhism, practicing meditation. And then also interesting to reflect on how it has changed if you've been around, whether it's months or years or decades or how your own aspirations Uh, goals have have shifted um and the reason i'm asking this and and what i'm going to talk about is i had a question the other uh day about um
1: let's see if i don't know if richard's here let's see if he's here yeah i think he is
0: Actually, I don't think he is. The the person who asked is is online, but is not here. But a student of of mine asked, uh, he said, what's the point of Buddhism? What's the goal? And I'm going to answer that tonight from the kind of traditional perspective. But also, there's lots of different goals. There's lots of different points. It's really depends. It's so personal. It's like, what's your point? There's the Buddha's teachings and what uh, uh, the Buddha's intention to teach was, but a lot of us come with much different aspirations. Uh, And I can see how my own goals change over the years. And in the beginning, I I started meditating. I was a 17 year old kid in juvenile hall, strung out on crack and heroin and booze. And I wasn't trying to get enlightened. I was just trying to get out of jail. I was just trying to not suffer so much. I just was like uh, hopeless enough that meditation sounded like, oh, okay, maybe this will help. I'll try anything. And, you know, I didn't have any high aspirations. I didn't have any big goals other than like, if I could just stop smoking crack (laughs) and stay out of jail, then maybe... um, there's a chance for some, I guess, happiness, some, something in my life. Um, but then, as I got sober and kept meditating, and started studying Buddhism and met like really ins- uh, inspiring teachers. I remember the first time I met a Buddhist monk, and I was like, "Wow, like this is a thing! Like, you know, this, is, and it's cool, and it's, uh, and they say you can get enlightened." And I remember reflecting on, like, "Do I is that what I want? Uh, what does that mean? What is that? Um, what is enlightenment?"
1: And hearing lots of different um,
0: perspectives, and and for a long time, being like, "Yeah, that's what I want. That's what I was always seeking. That's what I've always, you know, like, in some level or another." I feel like. The universal human condition is that we are seeking happiness on some level or another. And that Buddhism offers the ultimate happiness, the the kind of reliable source of internal, what we call enlightenment, liberation, that allows us to actually be, maybe happy is the wrong word, content, at ease, free from suffering um and quite clear like that's that's what i want um and it's what the it's what the buddha wanted so it's siddhartha before he was the buddha he uh share with you some of the the scriptures uh, the oldest they're called the suttas the uh, oldest recorded documents of buddhism um And this is first person coming from Siddhartha uh, just after awakening. And he says, before my enlightenment, while I was only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth and aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Does that make sense to you? He said, well, you know, I was unenlightened I was an and I, I was subject to this, you know, I was solely identified with this body and, and I was seeking after other bodies, all of this lust. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was looking, my confused state of mind was looking for happiness in other people's confused state of mind. This, you know, being totally identified with this body, I was looking for happiness in other bodies outside of myself other things that were subject to sickness, aging, ailment, defilement, death, sorrow. He said, then I thought, it occurred to me, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after something else. Rather than continuing to look for uh, happiness in all the wrong places, (laughs) (laughs) Um, what if I stopped looking in the wrong places? And the way that he put it was, uh, suppose being myself, I sought after that which is unborn, unaging, unailing, the deathless, the sorrowless, the undefiled, supreme release from bondage, nirvana, nibbana. He so said, maybe rather than, and for me, it's a simple frame. The way I hear this is he says, I, I, was, I spent the first half of my life looking outside myself for happiness. I was looking into the material and sensual and for happiness. And he said, it occurred to me like, there's you no know, happiness out there. He said, what if I look inside? Nibbana as an internal experience. What if I start looking for that part of me that was never born and will never die, that is not subject to sickness and ailing and sorrow, that liberated potential? And he said, so, and so that's what I did. And so there's this question of, okay, what's enlightenment? And here's a very simple answer. Enlightenment is, or Nibbana is, he says, that which is the exhaustion of greed, hatred, and delusion is called Nibbana. So Nibbana is the third noble truth of Buddhism. It is the goal. Um, It is the point, that question, what's the point? (laughs) Nibbana is the point. Freeing ourselves through our own efforts, our own actions, our own training, freeing ourselves from greed. What's that mean? That means we have to learn to sit here and allow pleasant experiences to arise and pass without clinging to them. It means we have to go learn to go through our lives enjoying the appropriate pleasant experiences without the greed of attachment, the the greed of I have to keep it. I
2: did.
1: Get the hell out of here if you're going to be this loud. I'm listening to my teacher.
0: Yeah.
2: Get away from each other.
0: (laughs) Get out of here. We're trying to get enlightened. Oh, my God. What, What did they say? (laughs) (laughs) To to my teacher. <laughs> a kid came in and one of the parents was saying get out of here I'm trying to I'm in class they weren't yelling at me they were yelling at their kid <laughs> maybe they were telling me to get the hell out of here um,
2: <laughs>
0: to free ourselves from greed now I think it's really important like we use the term greed as though It's like a um, intentional thing that like some people are greedy, like it's a bad thing and like you're doing it on purpose. Now the Buddha uses it as a very universal human condition. We are all greedy. There's nobody that is born into a human body that doesn't experience greed. We all have it. It's natural. It's normal. It's craving for pleasure. It's our survival instinct. And so I feel like that's an important One of the things I love so much is how Buddhism normalizes rather than pathologizes the human condition. Rather than like you're greedy and bad, it's just like you're greedy. Of course, (laughs) we all are. But it causes you suffering. And if you don't want to suffer, here's a way to end your suffering about the repetitive craving, the greed that all of us experience. to free ourselves from hatred. So, you know, again, as I said in the, early in the meditation at the beginning, learning to sit here and be uncomfortable without hating it. Learning to be on, you know, like, well, achy knees, loud mind, uh, you know, sounds, children running around <laughs> uh, and having all of the unpleasant experiences that we have, And learning to accept them, to care about them. It goes at first, first it's tolerance, increasing our tolerance for discomfort, unpleasant, challenging, painful experiences. And I feel like uh, maybe some people are naturally tolerant. I certainly wasn't. Meditation has taught me to be more and more tolerant. Of physical pain, of emotional pain, of mental agitated states. From learning to sit here and be like, okay, I'm just going to sit here for the next thirty or forty or however many minutes, hour, and I'm going to tolerate everything that comes. But there's something very um, there's something key about our relationship to sitting and to uh, I was uh, talking about the alertness the quality of attention, of turning towards, of being alert, that meditation isn't. uh, There's such a great uh, common misunderstanding that um, meditation is like checking out and just sort of like astral travel. And you ask somebody how their meditation, they're like, it was amazing. I was asleep the whole time. (laughs) Or I was like in this, I was on a journey. I was somewhere else, which is, you know, the mind does that. But Buddhist meditation, mindfulness-based meditation is about being here. I was here and I felt all of these sensations and I felt the breath coming and going and I observed my mind planning and remembering and judging and lusting and doing all of the things that our minds do. And I was here for all of it or most of it as
1: much as possible.
0: Our relationship to sitting, because there is a um, ability to sit and get really concentrated and use the breath the whole time to sort of ignore the pain. That's why halfway through the instructions, where I'm always encouraging, like if you've been doing this for a while, turn towards your whole body. Don't just keep ignoring your other sensations or emotions or thoughts. Turn towards it, include it, include it all to become friendly, to become um have a gentleness around, instead of uh, instead of like a, a macho, like I can, I can tolerate anything and kind of white knuckle meditation. you know, just bearing it even, you know, like that We're aspiring to a relationship to our pain where we're, we're in it, we're feeling it, we're caring about it. And there's a softness around our pain. There's a a warmth towards our pain, not just a, I fucking hate this, but I won't move because it's a competition. Um, And that will shift over the years of your practice. Um, My experience was that it shifted a lot over the years of my practice. In the beginning, it was, I fucking hate this, but I'm just going to sit here. And then I hate it a little bit less and I hate it and now I have a bit more ability to be friendly towards the aches and pains and emotions and thoughts and, and that that happens slowly for me. Some of you, um, you have your own timeline with that increased tolerance and mercy and uh, the end of hatred Right, the Buddha doesn't say here um, the exhaustion of pain. And there's nowhere where he talks about uh, enlightenment means that there's no pain. Well, the only place that I, I have to catch myself, because there is a couple places where he says, you know, if you get fully enlightened and the deathless, and I'll get there, and you don't take rebirth, then no body, no pain. <laughs> but if you have a body, you have pain and if you don't have compassion, you have hatred and if you have hatred, you suffer. And so, so much of the equation is learning to meet our, and pain is everywhere from annoying, you know, small annoyances to the big, Uh, heartbreaks and injuries and illnesses and losses that feel like almost unbearable, right? So unpleasant is the full spectrum. And if we hate any of it, which we all do, again, like hatred, not your fault, (laughs) normal, natural, we all hate pain. Your body does it all by itself. Survival instincts, hate pain. But the mindfulness becomes an intervention. Sitting meditation, training ourselves to be with it becomes this radical shift of, yeah, there's a part of my nervous system that uh, wants to reject the pain, but there's this bigger part, this wiser uh, wisdom part that knows pain is inevitable and that I have to accept it and care about it rather than keep running from it, rather than keep shifting out of it. The exhaustion of greed, the exhaustion of hatred and the exhaustion of confusion or delusion Greed and hatred are a little bit easier, right? Not easy, but easier to identify. Because you know when you're craving, greeting, clinging, you know it. On on some level, because you're suffering. And there's that feeling, that repetitive craving. Uh, When you're hating, you know it. You're like, oh, I fucking hate this. Right? You know it. But when you're deluded, when you're delusional, when I am delusional, (laughs) I don't know it. It's like the definition of delusion is that you are unaware of the reality and, you know, you're asleep to it. You're deluded. You're confused. And delusion, from a Buddhist perspective, comes in uh, many different forms. like even around pleasure and pain, if you have some, you can look at your own mind, do you have some confusion that you think maybe eventually you'll just get to experience pleasantness all of the time? Like there's a part of you, that craving part of you that thinks like, yeah, if I really, if I'm spiritual enough, I'll have bliss all of the time. Or if I'm, so from a Buddhist perspective, the Buddha would say, well, that's a delusion. There's no such thing as bliss. Pleasantness all of the time, um, or that, uh, or a confusion, a delusion around the. Um, if I was more spiritual, my mind would be um, perfectly skillful all of the time. I would stop judging. I'd stop comparing. I'd stop fearing. Uh, afflictive emotions would no longer arise. Right? Maybe you have that. Uh, I think that's a common spiritual delusion. Uh, Like I'm going to be able to meditate away my emotional, the the parts of the emotions that I don't like that are unpleasant. And only pleasant emotions will
1: remain. Um,
0: The bigger and more complicated to talk about form of confusion that the Buddha's referring to is the confusion or delusion uh, uh, that we have a permanent self, uh, not understanding that everything is impermanent. Everything is uh, subject to change, including what we call me. I am a changing process. There is no solid, there's no, uh, inherent know <laughs> uh, There's no inherent self. There's just this process of thoughts and feelings and consciousness and that's unfolding and constantly changing. And because of our dualistic language, we have to say I and me and mine. But part of the awakening that happened for the Buddha and, and happens on this path is that you start to wake up to... Um, the impersonal nature of so much of what's happening and that there is not a solid separate continuous self you can't find it you know look for it keep you know that's part of what we're doing in meditation keep looking keep inquiring keep keep investigating Uh, and the more you do the more you see this is just karma playing itself out, a body experiencing what a body experiences, a mind experiencing, and this what we call our ego, taking it all personal. <laughs> but even the ego taking it personal, not your fault. It's just what the part of the mind does, trying to protect you. And, and it's kind of I, me, mine. And But mindfulness lets us see through it and start to wake up to like, oh yeah, that's just just what the mind does. It feels so personal. It feels so real. It feels so uh, continuous. Because like, remember being a kid and you feel like that was me. I was that kid. (laughs) That was my fucked up childhood. I own it. And on some level, it's true. Like we, you know, this body that's been changing all of these years, these emotions, there's these mental imprints, of, you know, memories of, of our past. But on a, another level, it's um, it's gone. And even our memory of it, as we know, is not so reliable, it's not so, not completely accurate. So freedom, the goal, the point is to free ourselves. And this is the beautiful thing, and this is the big promise. And I, you know, maybe it sounds realistic or unrealistic on whatever level to you, but this is the, the, the Buddha's teaching is that actually we can through our own efforts, through our own practice, through our own renunciation and, and study and uh, training of our heart and mind, our own efforts, we can free ourselves from the normal state of humanity, which is greed and hatred and delusion, that it is possible to do this. And um, wherever you're at on the path, um, probably you have some verified Experience of like, yeah, it's working. I'm a little bit less greedy than I used to be, a little less attached, a little less aversive, a little less self centered, or taking everything personal. You start to see the shifts. Like when you first hear this stuff, I don't, I know for myself, I was, I approach Buddhism, I approach everything, I think, with a bit of skepticism, uh, uh, a healthy level of like, is this another religious scam? <laughs> is this more false promises, or is there something practical here that we can actually experience? And that's uh, uh, what's always said, is that this is to be experienced directly. You find out for yourself if it's true, don't believe me, don't believe Buddhism, don't become a Buddhist for God's sakes, (laughs) but become awake to your own reality and the the reality of this world that we live in. There's this great, this book is uh, Ajahn Amaro and um, Ajahn Pasano, a couple of teachers that I've studied with for a long time, did this book where they put together, they went through all, it's called the island, which is one of the ways that uh, the Buddha talked about liberation. And uh, they go through every single place where the Buddha or some of their teachers talked about enlightenment. It's just a whole book on awakening, on enlightenment. And there's this great list here where they have gone through all of the suttas. And I counted them once, but I forget how many are here. It's, um, I don't know, like 30 or something. Different words that are used for the goal for the point, for, Nab- for awakening, for uh, the, the potential that we all have to free ourselves from suffering.
1: The end.
0: What's, the, where, what's, your, what's your destination? My destination is the end. <laughs> I want to go all the way to the end of suffering. The taintless, the truth. The other shore, the subtle, the very hard to see, the unweakening, the everlasting, the undisintegrating, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the supreme goal, the blessed, safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, non distress, the naturally non-distressed, Nibbana, non-affliction, un-hostility, the fading of lusts, purity, freedom, independence of reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. So all of those different ways when the Buddha was talking to different people in different uh, scenarios where he said, you know, there's this refuge, there's this shelter, there's this undefiled nature that we can access, that we can directly experience. It's subtle. It's hard to see. It's, it's everlasting. It's, it's invisible. It's deathless. It's blessed. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. <laughs> so many cool ways. It goes on. The endless, the cessation of suffering, the freedom from longing, The uncreated, the beyond, deliverance, cessation, the absolute, the law, the deathless, the lasting, release, liberation, total completion, freedom from bondage, stillness, purity, allayment, the unborn, the unoriginated, freedom from lust, destruction of the passions, the unconditional element, the standstill of the cycle of existence.
1: just after the Buddha's awakening,
0: he, he, um, I always like to think about this. Like what, what would it be like if you actually had, if you were been meditating for some years and studying and practicing and seeking freedom and then you got there, what would you do?
1: what do you do when you get there? The Buddha
0: wasn't quite, he was like, he didn't really know what to do. He said, I considered, he said, I, I, I got to this place of awakening and freedom and, and no more greed, no more hatred, no more delusion. I, I, not, no more suffering. He said, I considered this Dhamma, this truth that I've realized it's profound. It's hard to see. It's hard to understand. It's peaceful and sublime, attainable, unattainable by mere reasoning. And this is important. You can't get there by just, you can't think your way. Unattainable by mere reasoning. You can't intellectualize your way to enlightenment. You can't study and become a scholar and reason your way there. You have to do the work. You have to meditate. You have to train your mind Uh, and turn towards your own direct experience. You can't learn it from a book. Unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. And he reflected on his culture. He said, but this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth this truth that is hard to see. And there's the term Patiso Tagami. He says this truth that goes against the stream. What I've you know, named this meditation center and been the flag I've been flying ever since I heard this. He's like, it goes against the stream. It's an act of rebellion against greed, against hatred, against delusion. And I love that he's saying this about India 2,600 years ago, he says, this generation? Sounds like this generation that delights in greed, in worldliness, that takes delight, it rejoices. How how do you feel about our generation? Is it getting worse? Or is it just the eternal human condition of greed and hatred and delusion? What's clear is that uh, we've created uh, technology of easy, uh, easier delivery systems for pleasure, <laughs> right? Like the greed has always been there and, and humanity from the beginning. But now we have like uh, more you know, access. It's like it's in our computers, it's on our phones, it's, you know, the delivery systems for the pleasant and the distractions and the, you know, it's, it's right there social media is you know a technology made to help you suffer <laughs> the whole point is greed and aversion and you know self check me out and the human mind that experiences that anyways and created that right because of our Self centered tendency and our greed tendency and our aversive tendency. We've, uh, in the last 260 2600 years since the Buddha was talking all this shit about his generation, we've just gotten kind of more and more adept at uh, the craving and aversion and technology and delivery systems of. Pleasant, unpleasant experiences. He said, it's hard for such a generation to see this truth. And it's hard to see this, and it is hard to see this truth. Namely, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And he wasn't sure if he should teach or not. He says, if I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me. And that would be wearying and troublesome for me. And I like the humanness of that initial. Sometimes you know you look at the statues and you're like, it's like, and people that want to treat the Buddha like a god and you know, this, he's fully enlightened. So, but I like that his own humility is like, that would, this is gonna suck. <laughs> I'm going to try to teach a whole bunch of people to be uncomfortable and to learn to care about their own pain. I don't have any, like, uh, you know, bliss to offer everybody. All I have is this experience of not suffering about the pain that we're going to continue to experience. It's a hard sell. Right? fucking hard sell it's not you know the christians got heaven and you know like there's all of these like much better you know instant uh you know purification of of your sins you know uh he's like i don't have you know i'm not gonna i don't got that all i have is like hey i can teach you how to be really uncomfortable and not suffer about it I can teach you how to uh, deal with your sickness and aging and death and and all of the grief and sorrow that goes along with life and have compassion for it. He said, This is going to be troublesome and wearying for me. But of course, out of compassion, after some reflection and out of compassion for all living beings, he says, okay, it's going to be, this is going to suck, but I'm going to do it anyways. This is going to be unpleasant, but I know how to deal with unpleasantness. And his own prophecy, and there was a few places where he had uh, kind of, he said, well, I'll do it, but I'm pretty sure only a handful uh, of people in each generation will be willing to do this. He said, I, I can never, I can't imagine that humanity that the masses are ever going to really become compassionate? I can't. I can't imagine that there's going that this is really going to be uh, a thing where uh, like we're all being mindful and we're all practicing renunciation. He said, but I bet there'll be a handful of people in every generation that will have the willingness to go against the stream. That will have the willingness to train their mind to practice some renunciation. That will have that uh, calling towards no longer seeking happiness outside of ourselves and start to look in here, take full responsibility for our happiness, seeing uh, the dead end that, that external sources are, too impermanent, too uh, unreliable.
1: So the goal of early Buddhism is a lofty one.
0: And wherever you're at, I say early Buddhism because Buddhism has changed a lot. And some forms of Buddhism um, don't even really believe in enlightenment anymore and um, aren't even seeking enlightenment and... You know, there's this, bodhi- this uh, term here where he says, when I was a lowly, unenlightened bodhisattva. And then there's forms of um, later forms of Buddhism where b- the bodhisattva became the goal. And this kind of, I'm going to come back over and over and over. I'm going to postpone my enlightenment until everyone else is enlightened. And it's a beautiful um, uh, act of compassion. And it's a, it's a noble um, idea um but it's not what the buddha was teaching it's a, you know but it's a, it's a beautifully you know kind of compassionate idea it sounds
3: almost christian
0: that idea to me like it's a like a martyr kind of
1: yeah
2: yeah
0: Well, and also uh, according to this stuff, anyways, the Buddha didn't really have a lot of hope that everyone was going to get enlightened eventually. He he called this realm of existence samsara, which translates as something like a perpetual realm of wandering from lifetime to lifetime, continuing to look outside of ourselves, and that very few actually stop this cycle. That all you know, and it's this weird setup where it's very um, hopeful. It says everyone can. There's nobody that doesn't have the ability to get enlightened. There's nobody that doesn't have the capacity, the capability that all of us can. The only thing is the question is how many of us are willing to actually meditate, to actually uh, practice renunciation, to actually apply this long-term in our life. And uh, apparently it's very few. And that even uh, Buddhist monks, I don't know if this is true, but I heard this, and I think it's true based on my subjective experience, that there's millions and millions of Buddhists, probably billions. Um, I heard that only 10% of Buddhists, even monks and nuns, actually meditate in this kind of form of meditation. That Buddhism itself became a religion of faith and of ritual and of devotion rather than the internal training of the mind. And so it's like on some, uh, there's lots of Buddhists, but there's not a lot of people doing um, what early Buddhism was encouraging us to do. And that now there's this whole other. I mean, this is sort of. Uh, there's this whole other really wild phenomena happening in the West, where there's millions of people meditating that aren't practicing Buddhism. But there's all these people practicing Buddhism that aren't meditating.
2: <laughs>
0: and then there's all these people meditating that aren't practicing Buddhism. <laughs> it's so wild. So I'm done with my soapbox lecture on the goal um, and open to your questions your comments your thoughts about uh does it make sense if you have a question at home you can raise your hand i think in the reactions or in the participants bar if you have a question here just let me know please rick
3: very general one but where does love fit in with the goal versus love the uh, enemy?
0: Which kind of love?
1: Well, <laughs> uh
0: huh.
3: Is love always to be seen as a distraction?
0: Do you mean romantic love?
3: I suppose familial love. Yes.
0: Yeah. Love. So, could you hear the question at home? The question was. Um, you know, if there's this goal that's, that's total freedom, where does love fit in? Uh, Is it a distraction from the goal? And I was trying to clarify, are we talking about universal love for everyone? Are we talking about romantic love or he, Rick was saying, you know, also like family, the way we love our our near and dear and um, not necessarily romantic, but first of all, I don't know the answer, but here's what I think. And it's partially based on, you know, when the Buddha says, I'm in this place of freedom. He says, all that remains uh, now is a sense of love and kindness for all sentient beings. He said, when I freed myself from hatred and greed and delusion, then what remained was metta. So this feeling of of unconditional friendliness and love, and maybe maybe this is part of the answer, is that in our unawakened, you know, we could refer to ourselves as lowly, unenlightened bodhisattvas, (laughs) you know, us lowly, unenlightened bodhisattvas. Right now, we experience like a special kind of love for our family and for our, romantic partners and for uh, our friends, right? There's this sort of, but that awakening maybe just expands that so that it's not so special that you have the same. I know you know this in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says we radiate kindness over the entire world, cherishing all living beings the way the ideal, I'm adding that ideal mother, (laughs) ideal parent, loves her children, their children. So imagine that, you know, if you have kids, imagine just how much you love your kids or imagine the person that you love the most in this world. Maybe you don't have kids, your partner, your friend, your parent, maybe it's your parents or your dog, probably your dog, you love your dog the most. And having that feeling for everyone, (laughs) Of, I fucking love everyone. I care about everyone. And I have enough wisdom that it's not the kind of love that is attached. It's not the kind of love that is controlling. It's not the kind of love that uh, suffers a lot about our inability to control each other. Right? It's not the... Um, codependent kind of love. It's a really non-attached, open, spacious love that, that loves without asking for, uh, you know, without it being a, um, a negotiation or a sort of like, I'll love you as long as you behave. <laughs> like I'll love you even when you're misbehaving. So
1: that seems to be
0: the place of love, where it becomes less personal and more universal. That having been said, there's this beautiful example, because of course, I don't know. I'm not enlightened. I don't fucking know. um, But there's this beautiful example, because I love my kids way more than anybody else. (laughs) Right? I'm not there where I love all living beings. Like, but I keep, I do the metta, I want to be more loving, I want to be more, uh, and I've seen uh, increased ability to be friendly and loving over the years. There's this place, the Buddha, after his awakening, he has two kind of, they're called the chief disciples, uh, Mogalana and Sariputta. And they're like, uh, at times in the teachings, he says, they're like, you know, equal to me in wisdom. He says, you know, like I'm the Buddha, but they're fully enlightened Arahants and um, they know all, they know everything I know. And they're like his homies, like his best, but you know, he's non attached, but when they die, they both die before he did. And I think they die close to each other. And I'm going to botch the translation, but he says something like, um, just after they die, he says, the assembly, the gathering, the sangha, he says, it feels empty without them here today. And uh, one time I've heard it before translated as, uh, it feels like the sun has been extinguished from the sky when his best friends died. And so there's a feeling of, there's some personal love there too, because he's not feeling that way every time the, you know, millions of people that die every single day there's a little bit more connection to those chosen life partners that he you know spent 40 years with after awakening and they died just before he did so there's some love there that's a little bit like the love that we feel whether it's like kind of a preferential love not just the universal love you know and the consequences of of love is some grief and he says you know, the way I hear that is, and I'm grieving. It feels, you know, like there's something missing. I've spent so much time loving these people and I'm missing them. And, you know, grief is the appropriate response to that kind of loss, even if you're awake. A little bit of sadness, a little bit of sorrow, a little unpleasant emotion around you know, it really feels like something's missing. A couple of hands at home. Let me take one online and then I'll come back to you guys. Uh, Django, go ahead.
3: Oh my Lord, I've had my hand held for so long now, I have no idea what I was gonna (laughs) say. I was just so with you on everything you were saying. Um, I just moved here from Nashville and, I, you know, I went to the, against the stream there and I'm just so grateful that there is one here. So um, this is my first time here. So thank you.
0: Yeah, welcome. Thank you. And um, did you where did you move to Los Angeles? where did you move to?
3: Yeah, I moved to Echo Park. Otherwise, okay. I'd be there.
0: <laughs> Great. Yeah, it's a bit of a commute from the east side to the west side. Uh, At some point, we'll have an east side uh, group going again. Um, So, welcome to LA
3: once a week for now.
0: Yep, come out to Venice and when you can.
3: Okay, thank you.
0: Welcome. Uh, I don't know who was first. I guess I was just saying, all
3: what you say, I guess it's more of a comment than a question. I think maybe that enlightenment is just unwavering discipline. Um, Still feel, I guess, that pain and suffering. Yeah, he's going, "Oh shit, I don't want to help other people." <laughs> or the fact that his friends died. And but no matter what, it doesn't compromise him
0: still being the bully. Yeah. I like that. You know, there. And I don't know. I don't know about the kind of the outcome. For sure, I I agree with like uncompromising discipline to get there. Mm. How much discipline does it have to? keep getting, doing the meditation, coming on retreats, doing, practicing the renunciation, like there's so much discipline in this world that's like, consume, consume, it's outside of you, you know, like to keep being disciplined and coming back to an internal source rather than an external. Um, One of my favorite uh, simple translations of how, of, of what we're doing to get to Nibbana is non-reactivity, the discipline of not reacting with craving, with clinging, right? Because our reactivity is clinging, it's aversion, it's non-reactivity is replaced by loving response, non-attached, compassionate response. Did you have a question also or comment?
3: everybody has this ability to be able to hit enlightenment, right? Um, I, I guess my question was, like, what about somebody who's not pretty to something like, say, somebody, like, who's in the bush somewhere and, or just going through it, like, they're getting bombed or something like that? Yeah. it's like, is it that enlightenment is, like, this... And my question is, is, it like, enlightenment this integral thing that's built in human beings It's like our natural default or is this like some cosmic shit where you've just been blessed with like the tools to get the fuck out your body or it's just like built into us
0: um the answer is it's built into us and it's built into every single one of us whether or not you've gotten um the map of how to access it Right, that 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 what is, um, uh, and that anybody who looks within, and really investigates, and it's what mindfulness is, right? Like, what's my mind doing? What am I experiencing? This this level of inquiry, um, that this is human nature, um, and that anybody that looks closely at their mind and their body and their emotions will come up with this Uh, same result. And that you, but it's a lot easier, I think, if you have a map. Like, right, like it's over, it's there. (laughs) It is much easier if you have a map. Like, here's how to practice the four foundations of mindfulness. Here's how to practice loving, you know, here's how to develop these skills and non reactivity and this discipline. But without any map, if you, if anybody anywhere really looks at their own mind, they will see. The truth of impermanence. They will see the truth um, of, you know, clinging. It causes, you know, attachment causes suffering. You don't have to. This is right. It's, like, it's why when you hear it, you're like, yeah, this shit just makes sense because it's common sense. <laughs> and so anybody would um, discover that is the is the perspective without it without the teaching. And that the Buddha himself had no teacher. He just was investigating his mind and came up with like, oh, okay, this is how it goes. Let me try to tell other people how it goes, how to get that internal refuge,
1: that freedom. So I think you're speaking to circumstances too. Like, I think some people just in this lifetime,
3: you know, we don't, the same lesson you know, and it's like you just don't have the same service, like somebody just might be so attached to their greed, so attached to like had so much pain or whatever and
2: has to continue experiencing
0: that. I like the um in the cosmology, it said that there's all of these different realms of existence, um, animal realms where there's all of this reactivity craving um, jealousy realms ghost realms hell realms where that's just too much pain to really deal with very well too much uh, heaven realms where it's like it's a little too easy to get motivated and that the human realm is meant to be this perfect balance where you have enough suffering to motivate you to be like well i gotta do something about it but also enough joy and happiness and pleasure to sustain, you know, like it's not like hell. It's, it's, it's balanced joy and sorrow, 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. And when you were saying, I was like, and maybe those are literal realms, but more I think of them as human uh, states of consciousness and that some of us can get stuck. Like, you know, when I was an active addict, I, like I lived in a, in a hell realm or a, a hungry ghost realm, and then as I stopped using drugs, I um, kind of lived in the animal realm for a little bit, <laughs> and then eventually became human. And, you know, and the meditation practice kind of brought me to, and uh, all of us to more of a balanced human. There's still a lot of suffering, but it's manageable because I have the, the tools to manage it. Anyways, uh, for your consideration, for your reflection, uh, don't have to believe anything, but keep uh, finding out for yourself what's true. Keep investigating, keep contemplating, um, do as you see fit. Thanks for being here tonight. Class is done by donation. Uh, We are a nonprofit organization that is supported by the generosity of those who attend class if you're attending online, you can um, make a donation online. There's a link in the chat. Uh, we request a $15 to $20 donation for drop-in class. If you can afford that, please uh, be generous and, and donate something like that. If you would like to donate more, you're welcome to donate more. If you don't have the means to do a, a $15 or $20 donation, give whatever feels appropriate to you. You know, If you're not having a lot of money and a couple of bucks is what feels appropriate, it's greatly appreciated. Whatever, whatever feels uh, appropriate to you and within your means. Um, many people become a monthly supporter. Say like, I just want to support the meditation center and the activities at Against the Stream. Um, and so you can do that on the on the website. Recurring monthly donations. Please consider doing that. Um, I finalized the. Uh, plans for the October 10th through 17th retreat at Joshua Tree. Um, I think that the registrations will go live this within the next couple of days. Um, there's only a handful of single rooms, mostly double rooms. People can also camp and so it's kind of you know if you if you camp it's pretty cheap. If you want a single room, it's a bit more expensive. Um, so based on your own means, seven day silent meditation retreat that I'll be teaching October 10th through 17th. Um, Hope a lot of you come that are here. Hope a lot of you come that are at home. And I think we'll make the registration live for that within the next couple of days. And hope a lot of you get to, to be there with me. I promise to schedule another day long soon, July or August, probably August at this point, but I'll get one on the books and we'll spend a day practicing here together all right that's all i got for tonight may any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions may each one of us attain nibbana in this lifetime and together may we create a positive change on this planet thanks for tuning into the podcast this is noah levine founder of against the stream and refuge recovery if you feel moved to leave a donation there's a link in the show notes